In society today, a lot of people perceive music as a musician's gift to the world. So you have this malarkey out there, oh, you can pay to play, or you can play for the door. In contrast, my elders lived music as a profession. There were places to play and to sit in. I've done almost 2,000 interviews on my program with all different types of healers who provide a multi-sensory and non-Western pedagogy in their practices. Their stories help to complete that circle of artistic authenticity which we all strive for. The cats I interview have been inter- making a living on the bandstand for the last half century. They have dealt with good leadership and bad. They have come to different understandings of what love is. They have overcome a lot of adversity in their lives, and they are adept at playing all musics. For me, nowadays, labels and names have really gotten in the way of our ability to create communal spiritual music. The bean counters want a, want a pigeonhole and brand music. I get a chance today to speak to somebody who really has been has had many chapters in her art- artistic life. She comes from a long line of artistic people, uh, but I'm looking forward to breaking it down with her on these issues. And she also has a gig coming up in Novato this Sunday. Shanna Morrison, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Hi, thank you, Jake. Such an honor to talk to you, my friend. You know, um, I know that you were just a young girl, but, uh, you know, in the 70s, uh, I just know, like, your pops, for instance, uh, <clears throat> I mean, he was making records, and and he was also going to the lion's share and playing with John Allaire and Steve Mitchell on a whim. Um, I just was hoping you could talk about, from your earliest times, how you feel like the significance of music has changed in our culture from then until today. Oh, wow. It's changed in so many ways. Um, but I, I just believe that, you know, it's opened up. There's, there's more room for many, many more musicians to be heard now. But, um, you know, back in those days, the, the musicians were taken more seriously by the labels. They were on salaries, and, and music was their job. It was their full-time job. And, um, and it's what they did every day, recording or playing or writing. And, um, you know, it's changed a lot now. <clears throat> you have to make your own money. The, hmm. the labels don't, don't pay you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's right. Um, yeah, so... It was um, it was just a really great time back here in the seventies um, in the Bay Area. There were so many bands that were doing so well and and had you know great support from their labels and were able to if they wanted to take a year to make a record you know and just really be in the studio and work hard on it you know and um, it wasn't such a fast paced. Um, you know, machine as it is now. There was no rush. I mean, if you have a big radio hit, you know, there's a huge rush to follow it up. Mm. And um, so there's was, you know, there is a lot of pressure. If you are putting out a a record every year under a label, there's a lot of pressure to at least do as well as your last did or exceed that. And you got to do it in a quick time. And myself, you know, I'll write 50 songs before I pick the songs that I'm going to record. And there were 
albums like that for my dad too, Astral Weeks is one, that he was able to write those songs over many years and play them out over many years and really develop them before he made that record. <clears throat> but when your label is saying we need another one and another one and another one, <laughs> it's not going to always be that, you know, in-depth and you're going to have to just write another 12 songs and put them out, you know? I wonder if you can talk a little bit about I had a, a dear friend, uh, an amazing musician named Neil Casal, who um, unfortunately um, took his life a few years ago before COVID, and nobody really saw it coming. He really, um, he, he kind of started his career when you did in the 90s, and it was sort of this, and then he had sort of morphed into this other um, career doing more instrumental music, but he was really a, in a singer-songwriter bag for a long time. I, I just wanted you to talk specifically about your own career. You've been doing it quite a while, and I just wonder, do you, is it, is that, do you, have you had a, do you still embrace the earlier part of your career? Some people just want it to go away, you know, and they're into their new thing, but yeah. I just wonder, like, from, you know, music has cumulative results, you know, in the sense that, you know, something might, you might put out a tune and it doesn't necessarily resonate right away, but then it takes off 40 years later. I just wonder about how you've grown as a musician and whether you lean into and embrace your younger years on the bandstand. Gosh. Um, well, I never had as much pressure because I, most, most of my CDs are um, independently released. So mm -hmm. I never had that kind of pressure of hurry up, hurry up. There's a deadline. We got to get this out by April and all this stuff that they make up in the music business. <laughs> they make it up. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I think in that aspect, I I uh, had more of a leeway to run my business the way I wanted to. So, um, yeah, you can you can maybe not be as famous because you don't get all this great publicity, but you can make money really when you do it independently. And so I started writing songs when I was in college. I sang backup for a couple of bands and hmm. just friends around LA and um yeah I was was writing songs and doing little demos and things like that and you know after college I had accumulated enough songs that I wanted to kind of go out and play and, and do a show um but now I don't think there's really much of those songs that I wrote you know in my 20s that I play now um there are a few covers that I still play mm. from the very beginning mm. But yeah, it's hard, you know, decades later. To <laughs> I, you know, really I, I, it's so interesting. Yeah. That you felt so strongly about <laughs> when you were 22, you know. Can we just go back to that time, though, for even though you don't break those songs out on the bandstand now, um, uh -huh. what was sort of like, can you talk about your creative process at that time? Like how the, the, the germs of the songs, how they, even one song specifically, like, because that to me was like the beginning of you sort of plugging into your purpose in life. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think one of the first songs I ever wrote was called Don't Call Me Sister. And uh, <laughs> it was a, a guy who I liked and he told me he loved me like a sister. <laughs> mm. 
So things uh. like that, little things that happen in your life and kind of you, you write a little song about it or even, you know, a friend, my friend met her husband at the carnival. They both worked at the carnival. So I wrote a song called House of Mirrors about them and how they met and their little story. And, you know, it was just what was going on back then in my life and around me. So a lot of it was relationship-based, but did, what about po- poetic stuff? Like, well, I mean, I'm curious about, like, um, I just, I mean, this is the Cliff Notes version, but when I interviewed Rick Slosser, the drummer, yeah. he, he talked about this insane story, which I will send you. Uh, basically, <clears throat> uh, long and short of it, he was playing with Barbara Moritz and Lamb. He got a call that Van was doing, I think, Hard Nose to the Highway up in, in uh, Fairfax or wherever you grew up. And uh, and he uh, <clears throat> showed up in the first two days. It was Ronnie Montrose, and I forget the bass player's name. but David Hayes, probably. No, you know, it was somebody else. It was another cat. I'll get the name for you. But, the, uh-huh. but like, Van, bas- your dad basically was, like, almost catatonic on the couch for almost two days doing nothing. And... And then, they like, I remember at, Rick said at lunch, like, the, the third day, he's like, guys, I don't know if I can, can do this anymore, you know? I'm like, I, I, maybe I'll give it another day. And your dad got up and was like, you guys know Hound Dog? And they start jamming it out. And the next thing you know, Van just rips off about eight songs in a row. And there you go. And it was yeah. like... He got motivated, inspired, and he got lit up. And I'm, that's kind of what I'm talking about. Like, I'm not expecting you to have that exact kind of thing. But mm-hmm. what can you talk about that creative process, even in today's world? I mean, is it piecemeal for you, or will stuff just sort of fall through you from the heavens? And you're like, well, I don't know where that came from, but it works. Yeah, um... Most of the time, a whole idea of a song lyric will come at once. And I'd say late at night, I'm I'm more creative in that way and things come to me. Um, You know, I just, it depends on if something interesting is happening, you know. (laughs) But for my dad, you know, if he has writer's block, it means he only wrote 10 songs that week. (laughs) It's a whole different ballgame there, so... But I mean, he was literally like not communicating with the cats for a couple of days. Like it was, it was a little bit unnerving, you know, like, cause you know, Rick had never met him. He's like, what is going on? And then just this one day, this bolt of electricity came through him. Um, you know, uh, one thing I, I, I'm, tr- I would like you to talk about a little bit as your, your grandparents, uh, what was the the record store, where was the record store? What was the name of it? And, and you talk a little bit about like sort of your early influences, uh, what you were hearing on, you know, in that store. I, I mean, it was, it was kind of revelatory to me. Yeah. Caledonia Records was in Fairfax in Marin County. Wow. It was called Caledonia and Records. Caledonia. Caledonia Records in Fairfax. Yes. Oh, this is so great. And um, it was a cute little record shop. You know, my grandfather did the stocking and the buying, and my grandmother kind of ran the cash register, and it was a nice local spot. Um, You know, he had jazz and blues and country and western sections, and then had pop and rock section. 
Um, but he was very much in, my grandfather was very much into jazz and blues and wow. country. Wow. And it was kind of my first little job, like on the weekends. I was, when I was maybe seven, eight years old, I started learning how to give change and do the cash register. And, you know, I'd, I'd do the customers and you know, my grandmother would stand by and watch and make sure that I was giving them the proper change. <laughs> But at the end of the day, then I would get to pick a record as my pay for working there. <laughs> I love this. And, this is so You know, beautiful. in the beginning, it was like the children's section. I would buy Disney records or Free to Be You and Me or that kind yeah, of absolutely. stuff. Absolutely. Electric Company, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. And then when I started to get a little older, like closer to 10 years old, then I was like, I want Led Zeppelin and I want, you know, ACDC and stuff like that. My grandfather was like, absolutely not. That's not <laughs> that is not music and that is not for you. Wow. And he would march me over to pick something out of the jazz or blues or country <laughs> sections. And then as I got a little older, like 12, I started to convince him, like, well, what about Ricky Lee Jones? Yeah, Ricky right. Lee Jones is jazz, you know, Grandpa. And he'd kind of be like, oh, okay, you can have that one. And, or Steely Dan, Grandpa, that's jazz, Absolutely. you know? Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, well, no, I want to be clear, though. Your grandpa wasn't opposed to buying that stuff he didn't consider music. He just didn't want you filtering it through your ears. I mean, he had yeah, it in the store, right? Like, yeah, he said that's just noise. But yes, he had that's all the... just noise. George, his name <laughs> George Morrison. That was his name. Yes. Oh my! I need to, this guy, man. What a legend, man. <laughs> I know. Oh my! God. I mean, seriously, like that. I realized that jazz was popular music when he was really in his formative adult years. I just dig. Yes. I dig. I would have loved to have gone through that store because it must have been really highbrow in terms of like. The selection, and the fact is, I, I mean, you know, in some ways, a lot of that stuff. I mean, you know, there are so many Zeppelin tribute bands today. I mean, there, I mean, obviously, that music yeah. resonates with people, but quite frankly, I I find it a bit noisy myself. I so I just I love the guy. I, I really are. I mean, did they? <clears throat> can you talk about uh, how they uh, their relationship with your father um, in terms of like? Clearly, they 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 understood. I guess the better question is: Did they? Maybe they didn't understand him completely, but did they respect him? Absolutely, but you know, for my grandparents, the most top of the top, best thing you could ever be in the world is an amazing singer and songwriter and performer. Like those were their heroes, wow. especially the, the American folk singers and, and blues and jazz singers that was the absolutely best thing so you know as a child my dad and even myself for my grandparents you would get so much praise and approval for singing a song or doing a little performance or you know something like that more so than praise for getting an a in school or absolutely i love this something i love this. Yeah, yeah so it was really something that was highly respected and and celebrated in the family. If you could play an instrument or sing a song or, you know, anything like that, it was, you know, in Ireland, they're, the families sing together in the pubs, they have sing along. So <laughs> it's just very common for everybody to be into that. 
it's so right brain. It's beautiful. You know, it's very artistic. And um, I, I, what do you remember some of the early performance? I mean, you know, I mean, you learned some songs from your. Were you learning like old Irish ballads, or what were you breaking out on the, uh, you know, that you were getting applause for? Well, yeah, my grandmother taught my Irish grandmother taught me all the Irish folk songs. Um, she just sing them to me at, when I was a baby, and then as I got older, I would learn them. And my American grandmother taught me all the American folk songs. Hmm. So singing things like that as a child. I find it very ironic we're doing this on St. Patrick's Day. You know, this is quite remarkable. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I'll be singing some of those songs this weekend at my shows. So talk what what so you'll be singing both the Irish balladry and some of the original the American folk tunes. Um, no, the Irish songs. The Irish songs, so of course. Weekend, yeah. Absolutely. So, like, did you have an opportunity early on to see people like Pete Seeger? Do you, I mean, did you, Seeger to me like that? He was a man of the people. I mean, the, the, he was doing a lot. He was an amazing musician, but he was like truly. Yeah. Somebody who was like, you know, I mean, he was like involved in union strikes and education and like singing around, yeah. you know, and I just wonder like that to me is like, I mean, I'm, I just turned 45. So like that, I sort of totally missed the boat. You, you see, I, to me, I, you're very lucky in my mind that you sort of lived through that decade of the seventies. And, and, and I just wonder if some of the original masters of either Irish music or American folk music, have you had a chance to, to see them live and what that experience was like? Well, the American folk hero that I saw countless times was Bob Dylan. Um, yes. You know, often Van would always go see him play if he was in town or they would play shows together when I was in my teens and stuff. So, yeah, I've seen him play the most and, you know, absolutely can't can't get enough of his bands he always has the most incredible musicians and just i mean the best songwriter yeah he was in a he was in a little bit of a different bag though when you were like a younger he wasn't necessarily playing folk music at that point i mean he maybe found jesus at that point you know i know slow train coming is my favorite ever 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 my time when i was really really into his music and just loved that Mark Knopfler. The whole thing was just incredible. Did you, I mean, do you, I've interviewed like guys like Jim Keltner and uh, Spooner Oldham who were in his band. They'd show up at the, at the Warfield, you know, in San Francisco. And like, there would be people outside, like, you know, protesting because, you know, they were, you know, they thought he was being, uh, you know, untoward towards his Judaic up roots or, you know, people would hold up signs like Jesus loves your old songs too. And, you know, it, it kind of all just sort of melted away. But I mean, your dad was playing. Do you remember the first time you saw Bob play? Gosh, I can't remember where or when it, it was. Yeah. But your dad and him, do, your dad and him, their relationship, went back to to Woodstock or is that fair to say or when did they first become uh pals I don't know about Woodstock but I know that I didn't mean the concert I meant like living up there yes yeah. yes I know yeah, yeah, I don't you did. know if they really met there I believe my dad met Robbie Robertson and the band there but not sure if he hooked up with Bob I think 
they might have met later when Van was in the Bay Area and Bob would come here to play. Van would go to the shows and, you know, they uh, they knew each other's music and, and had a mutual interest in in being pals, you know. It's beautiful. So there's this incredible uh, video, and I unfortunately I think I lost it, but um, the filler on the back end of it is your dad and Bob s- sitting on a mountain somewhere in Italy singing acoustic, singing tunes. I mean, it's just, it's the most incredible thing. It's probably from the 90s or something, but. I know, in front of the Acropolis. It's pretty. Incredible. Oh, you see, you know this. I mean, you're just, it's such an honor. I mean, but you know. Shannon, I mean, I just want to be very honest. I, I I want to talk to you. I mean, I interviewed Amy Helm last year, and, you know, she Levon being her dad. Can you just talk about, you know, obviously you grew up in an artistic family. Obviously you were gifted in your own right. But can you just talk about being a musician and a singer and how you've sort of learned to, like, understand that that's your father but you're going to be yourself and sort of not try to live up to him or you know because i just it's a daunting task any kid who comes from any mm-hmm. you know and I, I just wanted to know how you navigate that because i i love you're obviously a very accessible person we're living through this time that we talked about where music is not a full-time profession for a lot of people now. I have so many of my friends who are road dogs right now that are just like, I don't know how they're doing it. I mean, it's just, it's it's grueling work. And I, that, that being said, your father is an icon of, of music. And I just wonder how you've learned to navigate that and be comfortable in your own, your own body. Yeah, well you got to try to do something different to distinguish yourself. And I mean, I think I'm lucky that I'm a woman and, and he, you know, he's a man. So our voices aren't going to sound exactly the same. Like you get with Julian Lennon or Ziggy Marley or someone where it's really harder to distinguish. Interesting. That's right. Interesting. Um, So, yeah, I think, you know, I was conscious to try to, when I was starting out, try to make a different type of music, you know, more pop and, and with a twang and stuff that he just wasn't really doing. Um, and so that helped me kind of distinguish myself to, you know, so I didn't have to explain why I'm doing a female version of my dad, you know, I think it's beautiful. So, so you, um, let's just talk about those distinguishable things outside of, gender, um, your voice sounding different. When you talk about a pop tune, I mean, what is, your dad wrote a lot of tunes that frankly, I mean, obviously they got a lot of airplay and then there were other tunes that were actually, that never got into the sort of ether, so to speak, but they were commercially friendly. How, how, you know, and I just wonder about your own pop sensibilities, you know, maybe, Yeah. yeah, I'd love you to talk about that because to me, well, go ahead. The floor is yours. I mean, can you talk about how you, because everyone's like, oh, you got to, you know, every time you're like, well, I would yeah. say, I think when he had radio hits, um, they were more folky and jazzy sounding than the radio hits of the day of other bands. Absolutely. It's always a little more on that side. Um, for me in the nineties, starting out, you know, pop was, um, you know, what, 
what I love to do is, you know, layering all the backup vocals, you know, doing six different backup vocals parts to my lead part, <laughs> things like that, where it just sounds more produced and more shiny and big and like you've got a ton of people there in the studio. And, um, you know, Van's approach has always been a live approach. If you're in the studio, you're all playing at the same time and not a ton of overdubs. And, <laughs> You know, it's I love that, man. There, yeah, I did. There. I did. I know. He just wants to do the first. He wants the first take, second take, done and done. Yeah. You know, yeah. sounds fresh. It's done. And that dude was also, I mean, he was bringing in all the cats I've interviewed back in the day, all the jazzers, Richard Davis and all these. So the music did have a more sophisticated approach to the radio but uh, than most bands. But still, Moondance, there's a swing feel to that. Um, <clears throat> did you... Uh, can you talk about like a record that you are that you can look back on and and realize that it's? I just would love you to point me in the direction of a record that you feel is indicative of. It makes you feel good still to this day when you hear it, and and that it actually maybe did break through, and and it it is something that makes you sort of uh, it it's Shanna, you know, you feel like it's you. Yeah, I think I really love the Seven Wishes um, album, mm. which was produced by Steve Buckingham. Um, whenever I get a chance to work with a producer, it's always so such a pleasure. And someone like him, I mean, he worked with Dolly Parton and Linda Ronstadt and, you know, many, many wonderful female Unbelievable. Artists. My and, God. Um, so yeah, he was so great to work with. I love the product. I, you know, I really loved that whole um, project with him. And and I had a song on that album called "I Spy," and it had been on my very first release, independent release. But when I signed with Vanguard, they insisted that I re-record this song because they thought it was going to be the hit on the record. And. Um, so we re-recorded it. They ended up picking a different single. I don't know why. Mm. But we had a French artist named Ophelia Winter. And at the time, she was very big in France. She was kind of like the Madonna of France. She had different hairstyle every day and was, you know, very... Uh, she, was, she, was, she was out there. Yeah, I dig. Yeah. Not a lot of clothes on and stuff <laughs> in her advertisement. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so she actually... Um, picked up the song and they translated to French as oh far as they could gosh. get the rhyme rhyme scheme and more so than the exact wording of translation. But she had a hit with that song. So it was a, a good, you know, little payday for me to be able to sell, even though I wasn't the artist, I was the writer. So that was a nice period. Of I just time. want to be clear. That was I Spy in French. Yeah, it's called Japlon. And they, they kind of translated it, um, called I Fly in French. They translated it with the same rhyme scheme, the same melody, but had to kind of change up a bit of the meaning. I mean, I lo- see, but that's the weird thing about, I mean, there it is. You, 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 thank God you were educated enough to have writer's credits or get publishing for it. So there you go. And then you get a then you get some royalties for that. I mean, that's sort of the the triangulation of it all, you know? Exactly. And, um, you know, going into the music, you know, business myself, I had had 
my dad in the industry. My mom was a songwriter. My stepfather was a music engineer. I just grew up around so many artists and producers and managers and people that were in the business that I was very clued in to how it worked before I entered. That, no, you, that's what I meant to say is that you had you were educated yeah. by all the people. I mean, I'm just thinking back to guys like Gil Scott Heron, people like that. I mean, the older jazzers were like, hey, man, you got to get your writer. You got to get your publishing, you know, and so yes. many people. Huey Piano Smith, we just lost him. He never got paid for his tunes. I mean, it's, I, I, I have to say, I just lost my mind for a minute here. I'm looking at the track listing for this album we're talking about. I need you to talk about a dear friend of mine. You guys collaborated on the song Connection, Narda Michael Walden. Oh, yeah. That man is pure, pure electricity and love. Yes. And more talent in his little pinky than... Yeah, I mean, super (laughs) gifted dude, man. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I I sat down for a couple of writing sessions with him, and I think we wrote, like, nine songs in in a couple of days. Nine songs. Nine songs in two days. That's pretty good. (laughs) He just kept... He was at the piano. He just kept saying, throw out another title. Throw out another title. (laughs) <laughs> He's just yes, yeah, super energetic. Such a lovely, lovely person. Were you at Tarpan Studios for that, or I mean, like, this? Yes, I mean, at the studio, yeah. Mm-hmm. Can you talk? I mean, because I mean, did you have? Let me see here. This came out two thousand two, um, and I'm looking here, and there's guys like Reggie Young who are. Last I remember, that was like he was like Nashville kind of cat. I mean, did you record? Yes. Did you record this in different areas, or I mean, can you? T- uh, no, Seven Wishes I recorded in Nashville, and um, and I used session players there. Steve Buckingham kind of put together that session for me. Um, you know, I didn't want to produce my own CD for Vanguard, and they didn't really want me to produce my own CD. <laughs> And I had been wanting to work with Steve since way before uh, when I had another deal that I was trying to sign, and that fell through. So it was like I finally got to work with Steve, and um, he just put together some immaculate players, and that was also very quick. The whole record was like five days, and we were out. <laughs> like, Well, I mean, there's a lot of... I'm just curious. I know we talked about uh, your dad having his certain way of doing it, but... Would you say that there were minimal overdubs or was there, did you cut things and, and, you know, sort of. No, no, no. The band just tracked the songs. I mean, that's another instance of one or two takes the band tracked. And, you know, I, I did my little, um, you know, all my little background vocals overdubs, but yes, no, it was very much live. That whole record. I love that. That's that. I do feel like that is essential in some ways and so i mean can you just talk about your mom a little bit i didn't know she was a songwriter yeah she um she did she was a backup singer when she lived in marin and then she moved to la and she started getting into writing more and with a writing partner and um they had some placements for like movie soundtracks and television soundtracks and things like that um, but they were in L.A. in the 80s writing, like, melodic rock 
kind of. Uh, wait, I, what is her? What is her name? This the, I, this is so hip. For, what what band was she singing in in Marin? Um. Well, she had a kind of background girl group. And um, what was the? Do you know the name of the group? I mean, this is real. It was called Sweet Tooth. Oh my God! And Where are the tapes, up, dude? <laughs> they did backups for like Norton Buffalo, Jack Mack, and the Heart Attack. Oh I think they did some backup for Huey. I just got live gigs around Marin. Totally. I, I, I just. I mean, is there? I'm just curious. Like, and what? And what? Tell me her full name. What's her name? Uh, Janet Minto. So, like. Like, did you, do you feel, I mean, it's just interesting, like, uh, my daughters, uh, you know, they've grown up in separate households for the last five years, and in some ways, like, it's been a little more cathartic in the sense that they've been able to see their parents or who they really are, and I just wonder, like, as a girl, if you look back on, I mean, clearly your parents loved you equally, but did you feel like... um that it was better to not live in sort of a more of a nuclear family situation, especially with the fact that there was just so much art and travel and touring and sometimes insanity going on. I just wonder, looking back on that, if you feel like your <coughs> if your parents did the best they could. Yeah, I think, you know, <coughs> oops, sorry. Uh, I think that, you know, my mom tried to provide a, a pretty stable, steady household. Um, of course, as a musician, my dad has to work and he has to travel and he has to be places. But he was always very good about, you know, taking me with him. I was I was a portable child. So I love to you. Um, so you went. How early did you start going on the road with him? Before I could remember. Whoa. Yeah. Whoa. So, yeah, I remember being on airplanes when I was three, but I'm, yeah, I was going to shows before that too. Wow. So, wow. That is yeah. really heavy. I mean, I, you, that's insane. So, and I remember being in school and my dad would have, you know, have me on the weekend and he'd be playing at the Great American Music Hall. And so many times I remember being backstage doing my homework while he was playing the show. <laughs> This is great. I'm sorry. That is so great. Uh, did you now? Please tell me. I mean, because I. I mean, I don't know if you. I mean, obviously you know John Allaire, but because the man is just a yeah. ridiculous genius, dude. But um, yes. Steve Mitchell. I don't know if you ever met Steve. Um, he. They, I don't think so. They they had a. I mean, they would. Your dad. Correct me if I'm wrong, but basically, he was. And Jim Stern told me this too. I mean, as obviously he's 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 an entertainer and he's the band leader, but he also really sees himself as an accompanist. I mean, the, the John they play at the Lion Share in San Anselmo, and Van would show up, and I know that this had a major impact on guys like Jerry Garcia. Van would show up and with his saxophone, and they'd do my favorite thing or my funny Valentine for twenty minutes, just blowing. Just having a ball, and then maybe he'd sing. But he really appreciated and loved the cats who could really the accompanist. Kind of what you were talking about with your parents being loving. You know, jazz to me is a is an yeah. accompanist art form, and, and you know, your dad sort of still identifies with that too. Yes, 
yes, for sure. Yeah. You, um, where do you feel at this point you're still trying to push yourself out of your comfort zone as an artist? Gosh, I, I think I would like to write with more people. I've gotten in a really comfortable place just writing with a few people that I've been writing with for decades. But I think it would be good to start going into, into different areas to maybe spice things up, throw, throw in something new and, and different. Because, uh, yeah, I just have my favorite people that, you know, if I'm working on lyrics and working on a melody, I'll send it to them and they'll say, okay, let's get together. And, you know, it's, it's very easy, but it would be nice to, to try something new. I mean, you think that like, I mean, when you say new, like, like odd meters or maybe ethnic music or like what would be, I know you're saying it gets too comfortable and you know, you want to break out of that, but what would be something that, you know, when you say spice, spice, you know, what would that look like? I just mean like collaborating with different people, you know, everybody's got their own unique something they bring to the table when you're collaborating. So, yeah. But people that maybe you don't know as well or people that you, that might push you in a different direction that you otherwise, yeah. 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 I mean, everybody I've ever written with, there was a first time when I didn't know them and we wrote a first song together and, you know, that's a, that's a kind of a fun thing that I, I've, lost touch right i dig i dig completely i mean if you if you look back at the lineage of your singing influences do you play instrument do you play instruments too i only play enough piano to figure out chords well that's great yeah song so i can write down my chords i don't know a ton of chords though too so sometimes i'll write with a guitar player or someone that because I'm like, this song needs fancier chords. I don't want it to be C, D, G, E, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah, I'm not a great piano player, but I can figure it out enough to write down my little chart if I write a song. Who would you point to? In the, like, maybe, you, you know, it's not like you're um, sounding like them per se, but who were uh, the lineage of your voice and um, the influences, the people that you really looked up to, uh, what would be the combination of, of that influence uh, in terms of your singing voice? Um, I loved Dolly Parton, Ricky Lee Jones, mm-hmm. Pat Benatar, Tina Marie. Um, what about like Joni Mitchell? Yes, I love Joni, but uh, the falsetto, I don't sing falsetto very much. And that was her back in the day. <laughs> That's right. My new, you know, my favorite Joni Mitchell is Turbulent Indigo when she has a really full, deep. Voice. I have to go check that out. Yeah, I'm still obsessed with the Free Man in Paris and that stuff. It just, it, it's, yeah. you know, that stuff. But yeah, that, so Ricky Lee Jones, like, uh, and what about, um, what about black music? I mean, in, in terms of like, did, 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 were you influenced by like, you know, Tina Turner or, Whitney Houston. I'm not not that you try to sound like them, but you know, sort of like mm-hmm. that sort of R and B kind of uh, bag. Yeah, I, I don't know if I would try to emulate or sing. I mean, of course, I love um, Aretha and Patti LaBelle and those people. 
I couldn't, I don't think I could sing like them, but I do know I kind of, you know, was very much as a teenager also into Earth, Wind and Fire and uh, Luther Vandross and like all these really great um, singers of funk. Soul and funk, yeah. Soul and funk. So, yeah, I love that music and I, I would love to bring it into my world, but I don't think it's my bag <laughs> absolutely no i mean you, you don't want to that's it's it's to me there's just sort of like uh that essence you know to me like at this point i don't want to see that's the that's really the question i have for you um is that i see a lot of perform people that are playing music today and they're um they're going through a complete formula trip and it's like they're playing the same song the same way all the time. Now, yeah. I'm not talking about like Tower of Power or Steve Miller or your dad. You know, people that are already established and you have people that are coming out and paying a lot of money to hear what they want to hear. But how do you stay – how do you keep stuff fresh so that you're not playing the same song all – you know, in a formula trip kind of setting? Do you allow for – uh, you know, sort of people to stretch, you know, take instrumental instrumentals or, I mean, how do you keep people, uh, in the band engaged and how do you keep your, I mean, if you're not, if you yourself aren't getting off, then, you know, it's going to, you're not going to like the music. So how do you keep it, uh, so that it doesn't become some sort of formula trip? Um, yeah, the band is free to play and solo and, do all kinds of, you know, creative stuff. It's, it's welcomed and encouraged. Um, you know, we would like to have some musical hooks that we do in songs, but for the most part, it's a free-for-all, and that's how it keeps it fun, you know? And, and we play the songs differently on different nights. If we have a different guest musician, they'll bring their own little special sauce to the mix um but it's a great camaraderie and everybody's really comfortable with each other and band they they don't step on each other's toes they really complement each other and and um yeah and then sometimes if we get tired of song we put it aside for a while until we can think of a different arrangement to make it fresh again and bring it back later <laughs> i dig yeah what is your what are the most important qualities of leadership on the bandstand? Um, they don't like to be told to t- turn down. That's my advice. Never tell your band to turn down. Right. They don't. So they, I mean, but, but obviously you play with dynamics. I, I guess, you know, yeah, for a long time. Yeah. My, my band doesn't play loud in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, I just think it's a personality thing. You got to find the right personalities to work with, as well as talent. You know, it just um, you know you spend a lot of time together, and a lot of it is just sitting around in a tiny, tiny little room. Absolutely, <laughs> five of you crammed in there or sitting in a van for hours and hours. So you got to really like each other and 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 be able to talk music and play music and kind of live in close quarters and like each other. So yeah, it's, it's more important than getting the most 
talented guy in the whole world if if the other people in the band aren't too crazy about him. I remember um, <clears throat> Dave Holland told me that when John Coltrane joined Miles's band, he kept coming up to Miles and saying, what do you want me to play? What do you want me to play? And Miles kept turning his back on him. And Train finally figured out that Miles wanted him, he brought him into the band to be himself. He wanted him to play himself. Can you talk about a specific time in your career where you felt like you really owned that leadership quality? It's not an easy thing to do. I mean, there are so many people that become these sort of de facto leaders, but they want nothing to do with it. I mean, is there a specific sort of time when you, maybe you didn't even realize you were, but looking back on it, you're like, wow, I sort of, I sort of came of age because of that experience. Hmm. Um. We just don't, we don't like to deal with platitudes on the Jake Feinberg show. We like to, you know, something, (laughs) something specific. I mean, anything to talk about, because, you know, you're right. You're, you're in a van, you're in a, you know, all day you're crammed in, you're basically on the bandstand for two hours a night and the rest of the time you're with these people. But yeah, in terms of like, um, you gotta be able to keep your cool. You gotta be able to, um, you know, not get emotional, not, you know, there's going to be flights missed. There's going to be, you know, I've had a couple gigs where we traveled far, far distances and filled a house and still it got, didn't get paid at the end of the night. Wow. Things like that. Wow. You just have to be able to take things in stride and really uh, not let it infect the mood of everybody and c- carry on, you know, and that's what you have to do if you're trying to lead something. And that's why a lot of people step back and go, I don't really want to be the leader. I'll be a part of it. But um, that's right. Well, I mean, also, it's like that's a very I mean, it's also like you sort of need to have some. Do you feel like you on those journeys that where you didn't get paid? um, Was it because you didn't necessarily have uh, the apparatus around you. I mean, the musician shouldn't be the one to have to determine if they're going to get the money or not. I mean, there was, I mean, I guess maybe did you have some, did did you not Uh, have the appropriate muscle, you know? At one particular show, yes, I had a, a roadie that was kind of, you know, right. Supposed to be the muscle. He went into the office and tried to get that money out of that guy. And that guy was crying saying, I just lost it all betting on something. (laughs) He took the money from the safe while we were playing and went and bet it, and then it was gone. So the guy's like, you know, my roadie said, oh, my God, I'm going to have to go tell Shanna. And then the band is like, oh, no, don't tell her, don't tell her. (laughs) So then I went in there and tried to shame the hell out of the guy into paying me, and he literally just cried and said, "I I lost the money on the horse's you know, <laughs> don't change horses in the middle of a stream. I mean, that's yeah. insane. Right? That is so, my gosh. I know. And we were in England. We're like, we came a long way for this. And you packed yeah. the house and you played your butt. I, I mean, it's just like, yeah, you know, it's real. It's the real thing. And it's still, it's still like that today. Um, Shanna, before I let you go, I just uh, wanted to. You know, in this time that we're living through, it just can't be naive about the 
um, I just try to affect positive change in my world. Um, I realize that there, at a macro level, there's just a huge amount of suffering going on in the world. Um, we're overpopulated. Um, the climate is bearing down on us. There's obviously a lot of leaning towards um, governmental structures that are not appealing for me. Um, and the only thing that I know how to do is is inspire other people that's how I give love to the world. And I just wanted you to talk about your concept of love and how you bring love to the world. Yeah, well, music is one way to share with your community. I know that, you know, when we're playing in the nightclubs and stuff, there's a cover chart. But, you know, you can sing with your family at home. You can put on records and sing together. You can learn how to play little songs on the piano or the guitar and sing with your friends, sing at parties. And, you know, I think it's a great way to touch people hmm. intellectually, but also at a soul level and to share something. And I think that's, you know, what is really gratifying and wonderful about music is that essentially it is free. And in our darkest times, we can still share that. You know, um, I would, when, next time I'm out in the Bay Area, I would, I, if you have a gig, that'd be great. But if not, I'd also just love to come and, and meet you and maybe do a video interview with you if you're up for that. All right. And uh, it, it's really just, it's been a, such an honor to talk to you. And I, I uh, you know, I hope you have a great gig on Sunday. How, how many do you, how many gigs do you have on the calendar right now? Is it just sort of, you just sort of are able to sort of pick and choose when you want to, are you going to be going on tour at all? Um, right now we're just kind of staying Northern California. We have a couple of months. We can't play too often in the same or two gigs per month planned right now. We can't do too many in the same area, hmm. but, um, no travel planned right now. You know, all these expenses have really, made travel a bit more daunting so i'm not sure when we'll get back no you don't you don't want to get in a, you don't want to get in a sprinter van and do a 26 <laughs> 24 gigs in 26 days and just you know wind up at... i'd love to but i think we spend all the money on gas so. <laughs> so. well you know what there are no guarantees so if there's something inside of you that's burning you know maybe it won't be a huge payday but um Sometimes you got to take that stuff out to the people. I do like what you said too about just creating th music on your own with your family uh, and just sort of create, not waiting for the inspiration, but creating it on the fly. I think that's yeah. incredibly useful. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Well, Shanna, we'll be in touch and it was, I'll send you a copy of this later. It was really an honor to talk to you, my friend. Oh, thanks so much. All nice right. talking to you too. All right. Have a good day. Okay, bye. Bye.